Hey everyone, thanks for joining. And uh, today we have the privilege of having Eris Cohen. He's a real estate investor, entrepreneur, and author. Throughout his career, Ares has been involved in over $4.5 billion worth of global real estate transactions and has met with top real estate investors and billionaires from around the globe. He co-founded a real estate investment and development platform in Mexico focused in industrial real estate. Additionally, he co-founded a multifamily real estate platform focused in US real estate. A few years back, Ares launched the Real Estate Titans book that became a national bestseller and has sold over 40,000 copies. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about your journey of uh, why you decided to write this book. Um, well, I think that there are a myriad of reasons, uh, but you know, uh, for certain, uh, a few that come to mind. So, um, you know, I, I do think that, you know, life is about, you know, giving back, contributing, thinking, you know, what do you want to do, um, you know, with like the legacy, what do you want to leave, what type of footprint, et cetera. So I was, you know, for me, that was one of the main drivers. Um, at the same time, I said, okay, besides contributing, um, it will be a wonderful experience, right? To, to go and sit down with a lot of really incredible real estate investors from around the world. And kind of even for me, you know, uh, learn a lot from them, you know, uh, go and, and see kind of what they're doing. You know, you, you always learn a lot from surrounding yourself with such great people. Um, so I was very privileged uh, to, to go and sit down with a lot of these uh, in person um, interviewing them and put these lessons uh, in a book. Um, I also uh, very much enjoyed the, um, you know, the opportunity uh, to also introduce them to each other to each other um, after I wrote the book. So I do think that, um, you know, they also got some some value from that. Um, and I think in, in general, it was a very fun experience uh, to write to write the book. And how'd you I'm get to grateful. how'd you get them on board in, in um, so I've, I've been in real estate for about 17 years now. Um, I started off my career in New York um, and then, you know, moved to Latin America and then came back to the U.S. And I've been kind of back and forth between the U.S. and Latin America. And for me, um, it was really about um, with these different people, it was really not only about seeing how I can have access to them, but how I can add value to them, right? Because that's really, I think, something that's, you know, a valuable lesson that I was taught many years ago. One of my mentors taught me, you know, that it's very important to not only go out and seek, you know, incredible mentors and people to guide you, but it's also very important to see how you can add value to them. And if you can add value to them and kind of create this relationship where it's a pitch and catch, then they will want you know, to be around you a little more because everybody, I mean, th these people that have reached these heights, you know, they, they haven't reached these heights, you know, overnight. The overnight success doesn't really exist, right? It's, it's decades, right, of compounding hard work. Um, and for them to reach these levels, you know, when they, when they get to a certain level, they're, they're surrounded by people that are always just asking and asking and asking. And what really a lot of people should be doing is finding ways of adding value to them. Right. So for me, it was like that was one of the big challenges. It wasn't only how do I get to them, but it's like, how can you add value to them? So um, I was very blessed that in my career, I was you know able to work in, in 
um, you know, some some incredible investment, uh, global real estate investment firms. And I met a lot of these people. Then in business school, I also, um, I was a teacher assistant and research assistant for a well-known real estate professor called Peter Linneman. And through Peter, I met a lot of these really incredible, um, you know, titans. And so um, I, I would say that I would compare it to developing a grocery anchored neighborhood center. So, you know, in the off chance that any of your listeners have uh, either bought one or developed one, you know, let, let's say like kind of Walmart or, you know, Publix or whoever, you know, you want to anchor your center with once you get them, you know, then it's much easier to get the Starbucks and the dry clean and the restaurants and the other services, et cetera. And so here it was really all about, you know, kind of anchoring the book. And so what I first did was I went and I signed with the big uh, New York New York publishing house called Wiley. Um, and they agreed to, you know, together we would pursue this national bestseller uh, book where we could really make an impact. Um, and then, you know, with Peter Lineman, um, you know, he was always uh, very nice with me and uh, he supported me with this book um, and, and, you know, and many other endeavors. And so he said he, he'd helped me, you know, kind of anchor the book with a few people. I also, you know, through past relationships. And so once I got a few of these uh, Titans to join the book, then a lot of the other ones agreed together with the fact that they knew that Wiley was behind this. But it was definitely, um, you know, persistence, hard work. Um, you know, I got here, I'll, I'll share one story. Um, I reached out to somebody in China and this woman, you know, I was like, you know, hassling her secretary and I, you know, kept following up with phone calls and emails with her secretary. Um, she's this really incredible person in China. Um, she's developed, you know, a lot of office buildings, residential buildings in Shanghai, uh, Shenzhen, um, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I was insistent with her secretary. And so she finally gave me a date. And I realized that that date was a year from now. And I was like, you know, a year from now when I launched the book, it doesn't, you know, I, it doesn't make sense for me, you know, to interview. So, um, but it's just so hard. And a lot of these people, you know, because of these incredibly busy agendas that they have, they kept rescheduling, rescheduling. But, you know, this is just like, it's, it's a metaphor for life, right? You got to keep, uh, you know, pushing, you know, uh, hard work at the end is the cure-all. And so uh, I, was, I was very blessed to get all these people in the book. Absolutely. So you talk all, I, I read the book. It's, it's quite an easy read and it's a lot of great lessons. Uh, I think you, you tell a lot of stories in the book yeah. and um, I don't remember who said this, but I think life's um, the best people, you know, are people that tell great stories. Yeah. I've noticed this, I've noticed this, you know, with speeches, people that, you know, make a speech and, and captivate the audience or people are great storytellers. So yeah. um, I'm wondering if we can share a couple of, of stories from the book that really inspired you. I know that we were talking earlier about the, the story of Chaim Katzman, I believe. Yeah. Um, it has a great story. I'm wondering if we can share with the audience. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, to your point, um, this, so the, I'll, I'll tell the audience, this book um, is really not a book about any of my knowledge. It's really about me going and interviewing 11 different individuals from around the world and extrapolating seven key lessons that I understood from them. But also I went out and I checked, you know, with a lot of different people that knew people of this stature, of this caliber, um, of this level in real estate. And I shared with him these seven key lessons and they absolutely agreed that all of these are very important. And so um, 
one of these lessons that I talk about is that, you know, these people are really phenomenal salespeople, right? Um, and so to your point about being a great storyteller, um, in life in general, it's absolutely essential you know, if you wanna, you know, we're every day we're selling ourselves, right? Whether, you know, we're crossing the street, whether we're going on a date, whether, you know, we're doing business, whatever it is, you know, every everything is about selling yourself. And so sharing, you know, really great anecdotes and, you know, being a great storyteller is very important and it's part of, you know, salesmanship. So, you know, I do talk about one of these key lessons that I see and that I've learned from these incredible people is that they are great storytellers, they are great salespeople, right? Um, and so, you know, delving into real estate, you know, I don't know how much of your audience is, is uh, interested or an expert in real estate, but this is, this is I, I found this to be, you know, one of many great stories uh, that I, you know, listen to from, from these people. Um, is you know with with Heim Katzman, so he is you know a very large owner of shopping malls and, and retail uh, around the globe, and he was he was talking about his first deal, um, and he's in Israel and in Tel Aviv, and he's studying at the university, studying law, and in real estate, the beautiful thing is that you know it's we're exposed to it every day, every moment, right? You know. Right now we're sitting, we're inside this office building, you know, we're exposed to real estate, right? It's just, um, it's the biggest asset class in the world, right? You know, you're talking about over $250 trillion of, of value, just, you know, commercial real estate globally. And so it is the biggest asset class in the world and we have exposure to it every day. And so, you know, when you're walking from work to your studies, to your house, et cetera, you're exposed to it all the time. And so with Haim, he walks, you know, he's, he's going from his house to his university to study and he's walking through these different properties, these different, you know, pieces of land and he's seeing them and he's asking himself what could be his first deal, right? And the other great thing about real estate is that, you know, it's, it's really about you, how resourceful you are, right? Because it is very capital intensive right depending on what type of real estate you want to do and where you want to do it etc but you know it's not it's not something that you can do like a startup where you can do it you know you can start in the real estate business uh you know with with zero you need to have equity to go and buy an asset right and so the question is well where do you get that equity right so depending on how resourceful you are you can access you know friends and family money you can access your own money you can access other people's money institutional money etc both on the equity and the and the debt side and so with him he was able to you know to get some um friends and family money and other people's money you know crossing walking through uh these different properties and he said okay well you know what could i do in real estate how can i start this business where i can you know really create non-linear returns like exponential returns right and so um, and not only with him, but you can see it with a lot of people and I myself have lived through it that where you, if you can buy one property and, you know, buy the adjacent property and together increase FAR or increase the densities, right? So the FAR is the floor to area ratio where you can increase the increase the density. So let's think about, you know, the two of us going out and buying, you know, two properties adjacent to each other where the two properties have low densities, you know, all you could do is retail. But if we could get them together, there could be something in the zoning, something in the code of law that where we could increase the densities and all of a sudden do a residential tower, then that could mean that we could get nonlinear returns. We could get exponential returns, right? And so that's really, you know, something very interesting. And, and if you can do that, 
um, it's not easy to do, right? And the more sophisticated countries, right? Uh, there's the, the more property rights there are, the, you know, the, the more complex it is, but it's still, it's still uh, doable. So he says that he went out, he got these properties, um, and he was able at the end, you know, through a lot of, you know, complications, uh, he was able to acquire these properties. Um, you know, it was fascinating how he did it, and, and, you know, we can delve into that, you know, the specifics of the story, but, so, you know, he managed to successfully have that first real estate, and it's very important, right? Always in, in, any, in any endeavor you undertake in business, when if you could do, a, if your first investment, right, could be successful, and you can, you know, return those great dividends, to your to your investor, return that capital to your investors. You know, people will trust you, and you can start building a name for yourself. You mentioned property rights, yeah. Uh, and I know there's this debate. A lot of people that you you have your your own fund in Mexico. You're yeah. investing in industrial in Mexico. Uh, a lot of people don't invest in Latin America, and they yeah. feel that uh, the U.S. is a lot safer because it has you know a robust not perfect but robust system and justice system where you, you have strong property rights um, but now in the u.s it's becoming increasingly tough with a lot of regulations a lot of um, inf inflation you have you know, a lot of challenges in the u.s i'm wondering what are your thoughts on investing in the u.s versus investing in latin america um, you're in both markets you invest in multifamily in the u.s industrial in mexico what are some challenges in each place and what are some of the differences in investing in both of these um, geographies? Okay, so the US, I think, is, you know, one of the world's great markets, right? It's a huge market, right? In terms of valuation, it has the highest valuation uh, in real estate out of any in the world, right? So, you know, all the US real estate combined is much um, much higher valuation, right, than all the, you know, China real estate combined, right, or all of Latin America, right? So just to put that into perspective, you know, commercial, the valuation of commercial real estate in the U.S. Um, is about approximately 100 times larger than the valuation of commercial real estate in Mexico, right? Um, so it's a huge market, right? Um, and there is, it, there's huge depth, right, both on the private side and on the public side, on the equity side and on the debt side and pretty much any asset class um, where you want to gain scale, right? There's already a lot of institutional investors. And by institutional investors, I mean, you know, pension funds, insurance funds, endowment funds, sovereign wealth funds, um, you know, kind of not, you know, friends and family money. So, you know, more, a little more sophisticated, you know, larger scale. And we're living in the richest era in human history. And so because of that, um, there are, you know, a lot of really phenomenal investors out there who've been able to raise, you know, a lot of money because they've been consistently outperforming the market, right? So like think about the, the S&P 500 um, and some of the other uh, index funds, uh, they've been consistently outperforming these funds. And so because of that, um, they've been able to raise, you know, huge sums of money, right? Um, and so these players, you know, like, let's call it Blackstone and Carlisle and Apollo and, you know, a lot of these other great players, they've been able to, you know, buy public companies, private companies, IPO companies, divest companies, you know, portfolios, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're in this massive scale, right? Um, but they're always 
um, niches where one could delve into. Um, and in the U.S., you know, it's a, there's a lot of niches that exist, for example, that do not exist in Mexico, right, as well. So, for example, multifamily, right? It's the largest asset class in the U.S. It doesn't really exist in Mexico. Mexico is a for sale resi market, whereas in the U.S., there's a huge number of people that really are renters, right? So um, and it has to do... It has to do with a, with a myriad of different reasons for why this you know this this exists is different between the two exists. But you know in, in the U.S. you have that. You also have life sciences, for example. It's it's a niche that doesn't really exist in Mexico. You have self storage and all these you know different sec- segment segments and sectors. They become slowly more sophisticated, and more institutionalized, right? Because there's a lot of great players tapping into that. You know Mexico is a much smaller market. There is a lot of institutional players there. There. A lot of very serious lenders you know it's a it's also a deep market there is a public market you know there's about 20 public uh, real estate firms um whether it's REITs or c corps um you know that are there but it's not comparable to the size of the u.s market right now the reason for why somebody would come you know cross the border from the u.s to mexico is for the you know the projection of higher returns right so the country risk premium between in the u.s and mexico is about 200 basis points so for example if we can go and buy you know an industrial building in the u.s for let's say a five cap so a five percent capitalization rate um, or if we can cross over to mexico and buy it at an eight percent cap right so that 200 basis point risk premium you know, and assuming with that we can buy the exact same building or a very similar building with very similar lease, with a very similar tenant and credit rating, with very similar financing terms, which is all the case, then, you know, for some players, it may make sense, right, to cross over to Mexico. And that's what we're seeing. We are seeing that, you know, there are a few players, you know, so we have an institutional uh, investor who's partners with us, uh, who, you know, who really saw that the value right with that with that arbitrage and with that investment thesis now some of the difficulties you mentioned what are some of the difficulties in mexico well of course you know i think we're all aware today you know whether it's through netflix or whatever you know that there is like the you know all these famous shows like narcos and all that and i do think that you know um it 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 does scare off some people uh but you know mexico is a country with 130 million people um it's you know it's a country with really great demographics and fundamentals um, and it does have rule of law. You know, it's not as advanced as in the U.S. So, of course, you can feel safer with a rule of law in the U.S., right? And the property rights in the U.S., et cetera. But a lot of these institutional investors that do come to Mexico can get title insurance and can have other types of protections and mitigate risks, et cetera. And at the end of the day, you know, you have to be in geographies and in markets and in cities and in neighborhoods where you have pro-business uh, government, right? And so, you know, in the U.S., you also have a lot of, you know, areas where it's very difficult, right, um, you know, to invest in real estate. Um, like, you know, for example, if you tell me you want to invest in California versus Florida, right, California, you know, has, you know, tremendous hardships, right, and hindrances, you know, from the government and from the neighbors and from the people, whereas in Florida, it's much more business friendly, right? And so you could see, you know, during COVID, the boom that Florida had versus, Mexico, right? Sorry, versus California. And in Mexico, you're also seeing differences in, in different states and in different areas and different asset classes, right? But in general, you have to be, you have to have exposure to, to that. Are you seeing a difference between, you mentioned Florida and um, and California. Are you seeing differences in the risk premium or in caps, in cap rates between Florida and, for example, uh, California? 
that it's a reflect that reflects this increased risk because of rent controls, regulations, and other th and other uh, such you know policies that might be misguided and and that might you know make investors shy away from these locations. And if not, I wonder why. Why I think it's is it embedded in in the investor psychology that the U.S. is safer, and because of that, it's so hard to find better deals in, in, in like, or this arbitrage opportunity that you're mentioning in Mexico, in, in locations in the US because of this, because it is embedded in the investor psychology. Yeah, so I, I think that um, you are seeing a spread between Florida and California. There are more players historically that have wanted to invest in California versus Florida. There's also a marketing effect you know, of having exposure, you know, to the darling cities like New York or LA or SF, right? You know, so historically these are more liquid markets where there are more institutional players on the equity side and on the debt side, right? And at the end, just, you know, we, we keep mentioning institutional investors is because these are the very large investors that really move the markets, right? And that create the valuations, right? Um, and so, and to create the markets. And so that's why we were mentioning them, you know, versus like a mom and pop. I mean, you know, how much, how much family office money do you need to raise, you know, to go and buy, you know, a mixed use project in downtown LA or, or New York, right? So really it's, it's mostly institutional money that's moving these, these projects on a larger scale. And so, um, we are we are seeing that you know there are still a lot of you know pension funds and sovereign wealth funds that want to have you know exposure to these to these iconic buildings and really the reason for that is because you know like let's say you're a sovereign wealth fund from Asia or from the Middle East and you want to have exposure to the U.S. right because it's the safest country in the world to invest in real estate and absolutely is um, and you're saying okay well my investment is for a 50 year period so I don't really care about you know internal rates of returns and equity multiples I care about wealth preservation and so for me it's really about having that exposure to that asset you know that iconic asset because real estate you know the famous you know cliche about location 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 it's it's, it's very true right um, and so having exposure exposure to really great locations is a very important thing you have that exposure to LA and you're like okay well to me it's like a 50 year mindset I'm not really doing great ground up development there. I'm going in and buying assets. And so, you know, I'm willing to pay a risk premium or, or a lower cap rate or a higher valuation, a higher multiple. Then if I can go to Florida, you know, you, you are still seeing a lot of players that are willing to do that, right? And so because of that, the governments in places like New York and California have that luxury of continuing to be, you know, very difficult, right? And continuing to push a socialist agenda and they can permit that because you still have you know, that institutional money that does want to flow into these cities and states. What are some of the of opportunities that you're seeing right now in the market? Um, I know you, you invest in multifamily in the U.S. and we've seen some valuation compression in the U.S. I don't know if you've seen that in the markets that you're investing in, but that can mean, you know, opportunity if you're investing for the long run. So what are a few opportunities that you're seeing? And now is there... Any, are there any challenges that you're seeing because of you know rising rate environment? Um, I know there's there's an entire debate of if cap rates get affected by interest rate interest rates getting up, going up or going down if that affects cap rates. Some proponents say no, others say yes. There's a heated debate. I'm wondering your thoughts on that and have you where are some opportunities for the next few years? Yeah, so, okay, so th there's a lot of research that does show that cap rates and interest rates are not correlated, 
you know, although people perceive that it is, right? And so because of that, you know, people argue that perception at the end becomes reality. But if you look at the hard numbers, right, and you look at, you know, downturns in the US and Europe in the last 40, 50 years, when those have happened, right, you don't you don't really see, right, you know, a, a very obvious correlation, right? So between 2004 and 2007, right, we were kind of living in this golden era of private equity and real estate. Um, and you did see, you know, that cap rates were going down at the same time, interest rates were going up. But, you know, what what really you can you can look at is, you know, the number one thing is, is there a debt? Is there financing readily available in the market? Right. Because, again, when you look at real estate, financing is a huge issue. Right. It's a very important element that drives valuations in the market. And then. You know, besides, you know, these mortgage players or lenders, um, is there equity uh, available? And so if those two are there and they are present, right, that means, right, that there will be transactions in the market. Um, and of course, any owner, you know, whether they're a short term, middle term or long term owner of real estate, they want to sell at the highest price possible. Right. That's always the case. And. Um, you do have usually in downturns stress with financing, right? And with lenders putting different rules, um, you know, and, and caps in place on what you could do um, if you want to sell, et cetera. And so I do think, you know, right now we are seeing dislocation. Um, but, you know, if, if you look at what, you know, so Green Street is, you know, they have these really great market studies in real estate. Um, and if you look at what they've been, you know, uh, talking about is that, you know, transactions in the U.S. have decreased like by about 80 percent or so in the last 12 months. Why? Because there is no real um, and capital markets are inverted, by the way, in terms of cap rates and the cost of financing. And and so really what that means is that, you know, we're still going to be in this in this environment where there's not going to be a lot of transactions. Why? Because buyers want to buy at the best valuation possible according to what's happening in today's market with all the tremendous volatility and you know the, the the potential threat of inflation even though you know there are different arguments for what's happening there uh but because of that you are seeing that transactions today have decreased significantly um and lenders you know what they want to ensure right now is that they get paid you know that they're you know that the equity holders are paying servicing their loans um and so we are seeing some defaults um we're also hearing right especially especially if you look at different asset classes that are weaker today right than pre pre-covid like office or like indoor malls right like these two asset classes for example like the office market in the us you're talking about a three trillion valuation right so it's a huge asset class and of course we're going to see you know a lot of pain for example there but if you if you ask me are we going to see you know tremendous pain in multifamily or in industrial no right these are the two darling asset classes in the us today uh, you know, there's so much equity pursuing these two asset classes that, that there's not going to be, you know. So, for example, if we're thinking there's going to be a tsunami, no, uh, there could be some sprinkles, right, um, in terms of what we could see there. But I think overall, we are going to be seeing this location. We are going to see sellers have to sell forcefully because they have to refinance. And so, you know, if you have to refinance today um, and you have to sell, you know, at, you know, 50 basis point cap rate um, or, you know, like something like receive a small hit, you're willing to do that and to exit today. But, um, you know, a lot of these players that still have dry powder and where they can add more equity and take down their, their debt, 
um, they're just going to keep doing that and hold the asset um, a little longer. But I, I don't think that we're going to see you know tremendous distress in the market um, now. Having said that, there are always niches, right? If you look at Blackstone, right, they're the largest owner of real estate in the world, and they are they've found their niche, which is a niche where they are the largest and they're doing the largest deals, right? So they could do deals anywhere from you know a billion dollar deal to you know a hundred billion dollar deal, and so they really play where there's very fewer you know very few players, and so and they're and they're you know really good at finding these value add and opportunistic type investments. Um, and so we could see, you know, those types of groups having access, you know, to, to these incredible distress opportunities. Or we could obviously see that, you know, buyer, you know, in middle America have access to some houses that have been in distress for different reasons. But that's not only now, right? That always exists. Do right? you think and Blackstone all- has been overpaying for their, in their acquisitions? Look, I, I think that you know they're they're usually the smartest people in the room, um, or if not, they're some of the smartest people in the room. And um, you know, I think overpaying is relative, right? Because if you can overpay, and uh, you know, for a core or core plus asset, and you know, over the seven to ten year life horizon. Um, of that investment, give your investors at the end, you know, something between 12 to 15% IRRs for taking those types of risks and you're in US dollars, then I think you've, you've provided your investors with phenomenal returns for the risk that they took, right? And I think Blackstone has, you know, shown that consistently over time, right? Since since our founding, right, in, in the 80s until today, they've, they've managed to do that. So I do think that, you know, it's all relative. They're known in the market to pay fair value, right? They pay the price, but it's because they see a lot of ways to add value, you know, through all their synergies, right? And through their economies of scale and scope and, and you know, and their personnel and their access, right? The different consultants um, and their access, you know, to different, uh, you know, really great knowledge market bases. Um, they're, they're able to add really great value, right? And, and it's also, I think that there, there's a deeper point here, right? That in general, because, you know, we're talking about the largest owner of real estate in the world, but let's talk about, you know, somebody who's living in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, you know, who's working a nine to five job, who wants to start buying, you know, uh, uh, make a small investment in real estate for $100,000, right? To really, um, there, what you need to do, and we talked a little about it in, in the book, is really what you need to do is you need to get to know the markets and you need to find, you know, niches or segments where you can add more value than anybody else, right? And that's really what business is all about. Success in business Right, is really about adding more value than anybody else, right? I mean, any company that we can think of, right? So, like, you know, what what is one of your favorite companies? Like, say Apple. Let's say Apple. Okay, so Apple is like, you know, I think maybe for eighty percent of the world, if you ask them, like, what is our favorite company? Probably eighty percent or more of the world says Apple, right? Um, and this, I read this uh, study um, recently. Uh, I think it was like 82% or something. So, um, and, and it's really incredible, right? And it's because they've found ways, right? They, they were never really the first ones in the market in any product, right? But when they enter that market and they enter that product, they add more value to their customers 
than anybody else, right? And when they do any type of product, right? That, you know, Costco is also um, a great company where their whole business model is like, look, if we have a product inside, you know, one of our, one of our uh, supermarkets or wholesale stores, you know, we have to have either the number one or the number two product in that city or in that market. Like that's their, their whole strategy, right? But it's really, again, it's about adding more value and being the best, right? Um, and so I think, you know, companies like Blackstone and Carlisle and a lot of these giant private equity real estate funds have, have been able to do that. So you mentioned distress. I want to go back to that uh, for a second. Um, I was reading about, you know, you have vacancy rates of 30% in some commercial spaces in, in, in San Francisco, for example. And, you know, we had the blowout of, of SVB a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I'm wondering, I'm, I'm looking at this and, and to be honest with you, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of scared when I see the, the commercial space, a lot of, a lot of debt is coming due and banks are not refinancing. A lot of these, of this commercial debt um, was held by, by banks, by regional banks, which are being, are in distress right now. I'm thinking if, if there's trouble there, if there can be trouble because the implications of, let's say, a default in this space are great. A lot of these, you know, um, um, cities, their tax base depends on high valuations for these commercial properties. So if you have defaults and you have valuations coming down, the entire tax base of a city can fall off a cliff, which has broader implications for society. So I know I'm being, you know, very pessimistic here, but I don't know if you if you see like a risk in, in that sector. I know many, many people like, for example, David Sachs and, and some others have mentioned that there's a, there's a risk here and that's the next thing to implode is commercial real estate because of the high debt. And a lot of this has been driven, in my opinion, by extremely low rates held at 0% irresponsibly by very smart people of the Fed. Um, I'm wondering if, um, what are your thoughts on this? Do you, do you actually see this or am I being too pessimistic here? I, I think it, there, we're going to see very different things um, in different countries, right? If we're talking about the U.S., we're also going to see, I, I believe, different things, both, you know, the public markets versus the private markets. And we're going to see very different things, you know, within different geographies and different asset classes. But I, I do agree with you that, you know, if you take your argument and you follow, you know, that logic to its end, you will see that at the end of that logic, there will be a difference in valuations for sure, right? So again, it depends on which which sectors, right, and which geographies. But you know, for sure, we're going to see you know tremendous hardships in the office market, right? There's going to be you know plenty of default there, right, and foreclosures where you're going to have you know the B of A's of the world, you know, move move these loans into their special situations group, and they're going to start foreclosing on a lot of these buildings, and they're going to turn around, and they're going to have to sell it, and there's going to be you know really great opportunities for those, you know, let's call them local developers that are willing to take that risk, buy that office building, and repurpose it right into a multi uh, building or into you know maybe tomorrow it will be vertical farming you know, in places like SF or LA, or maybe, you know, life science buildings, or, you know, a mixture of a few different types of, of future, let's, let's call it future friendly sectors. And again, depends really on the geography, but I do think that there's gonna be um, opportunities there uh, for sure. 
And and look and look when you're a public company you have the systemic risk right that's very different than if you're a private company right and also you know equities are three x more volatile than you know than than bonds right as well so you know when you're a public right so uh, there's also that and you know so if if you are a long term investor right and you know long term I mean like ten year plus right and you have the stomach right to take on those risks right that there there could be some really incredible opportunities right today whether it's shorting or longing REITs um, and other you know companies that have exposure to real estate uh, on the equity side and there could also be you know a very clear um, you know play on the debt side for, for real estate investing do you see near shoring as a secular trend that's very strong secular trend going on in mexico you know a lot of a lot of companies are moving out of china for obvious reasons and a lot of them are moving production to mexico we we saw that elon musk announced a few weeks ago that he's building a plant in mexico too and do you do you see this happening have you like you're an investor in, in, in industrial space in mexico do you see this happening and how how has that contributed to the growth of industrial and areas close to the to to the border of the US like Tijuana and other cities definitely um, you know most of my time is dedicated to an industrial platform in Mexico so you know call it near shoring ally shoring friendly shoring right there's a lot of different names today that you're hearing out there but basically what that means in case you know people in your audience are not not familiar with this is that you know so for the last 50 years or so we've been living in this world that slowly become more and more global right um and past u.s administrations were very focused on you know, moving a lot of the production from the U.S. to China, right? Um, and we saw that, you know, in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s, right? Everything was taught, everything was made in China, right? But not only China, China is a huge industrial manufacturing market, but you also see huge production in places like Vietnam and the Philippines and Laos and Cambodia and, you know, Southeast Asia. And so now, um, you know, probably two, three years before COVID, um, you know, through a lot of the policies that Trump implemented, we started seeing kind of this nearshoring effect and a lot of these, let's call them US companies and European companies moving back from Asia, China and Southeast Asia back to, let's call it Europe, uh, North America. Mexico has been a huge winner of its geography, right? Being next to the US. Um, it recently signed an updated version of what was NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, now is the USMCA. Um, and so that's been something, you know, wonderful, I think, for all of North America. But Mexico is clearly one of the big winners from this, right? And so um, today it's receiving a huge number of companies, right, that want to come back, right, that were in China or in Vietnam or any of these places, you know, in the last 20, 30 years producing. It's much cheaper for companies. Not It's not only the threat of the geopolitics world but it's also you know a an, a very serious it's a very real item that has to do with profit right and with bottom line and so it's more profitable for companies to come back and put their manufacturing plant in Juarez or in Monterey or in Tijuana um, etc and it's also much cheaper for them to be on the you know on, on the Mexico border cities right it's between 30 and 40 if you look all in cost fixed variable costs it's 30 to 40 percent cheaper to produce to manufacture 
in Mexico in some of these cities and to be in places like let's call it you know Dallas or San Diego or El Paso etc and so is that's it cheaper like, than China yes it is all in it's absolutely cheaper than China and that's also one of the main reasons right because at the end what drives you know companies decisions should be profit right I mean as long as they're doing everything legal uh, right we have you know t today a huge issue with with ESGs right which is environmental social governance movement as well um, and we're seeing a lot of companies you know follow that and implement that and in Mexico they can do that uh, but you know to, to your point nearshoring is a very real thing we're seeing that effect and and I would also add that the you know the I guess it's a surprising you know pleasant surprise that we've seen on this side of the world uh, in North America is that there is a huge number of Chinese companies and Southeast Asia companies that have moved to this side of the world and that have also moved their production, right? Because they don't know tomorrow what could be implemented by the Chinese government or the Vietnamese government or the Philippinian or the Indonesian government. And so they've moved production to this side of the world as well. And so, you know, Mexico, the industrial market in Mexico is about 60% light manufacturing and about 40% logistics. Right. So that means warehousing distribution. Um, uh, but but, you know, nearshoring has been something really great that that's, you know, that we believe is a secular trend to your point um, and secular for your audience. I mean, that it's a long term trend. Right. So we believe that it's here to stay, you know, for the next few decades. If it's cheaper in Mexico, why do they have to wait until 2021, 2022, 2023 to move production to Mexico? I'm wondering, because, you know, companies care for profit as they should. Um, so why why wait why wait until you know the ccp does some the communist uh, party in china does you know some moves that i that are quite frankly you know anti-property rights or or expropriating property etc why why wait until then why not move it before if it's cheaper because before it wasn't cheaper um, so, you know, things have changed. So, you know, if you were if you were a company in the 80s, you know, if you're General Electric in the 80s and you're looking at China and it's like this sleeping line, right? That's how they used to call it, right? And um, you would go to China, right? It was a very different China than it is today, right? And so you would go there and, you know, labor costs were, you know, you had tremendous access to labor and at the same time you know the cost per hour versus places like mexico back then was half price right so in china it made absolute sense to move there back then right but today right you know china has prospered so much it's had incredible it's had an incredible run in terms of you know its annual growth like you know like in the last 30 years or so, you know, if they had a 7%, you know, annual growth, that was something slow. There was a slowdown in the economy, right? Um, and today, you know, China has kind of reached that kind of Western world, you know, US type of growth percentage, right? And so it's clearly that's why they're implementing these policies where now they want to have the population grow. They want a younger population. They want more females, right? You know, there's a, a bunch of things there that, that are going on, but really, um, we are we are seeing today, you know, probably since three to five years ago, where you saw the trend starting to change and it started to make profitable profitable sense, right? Bottom line, it started making sense to move back, right? But before that, it wasn't the case. I know you're a huge fan of Tony Robbins, and uh, you're a huge fan of working on yourself. You know, I know it's a bit cliche, but a strong body is a strong mind. Um, I know that you have a very 
strong routine, a morning routine, you work out. How important is that for your success in business? How much would you attribute that your success in business to having discipline and, and, and working out and, and doing all these, implementing these practices? And what are some of your, what, what's your morning, what's um, Ares's morning look like? Um, so so I, I definitely agree with you, right? That it's very important to have these types of routines to be very focused, right? And I think now more than ever, like if, if you're looking at, you know, the different research that's being produced by, you know, the departments of psychology at places like Stanford, and Berkeley and Penn and Harvard, you know, they're, they're producing, you know, some really great insight into what's going on, you know, the effects, the negative effects, right, of media today, the negative effects of, you know, social media, you know, big tech, um, big media, etc. So it is very important for us to be aware that we are living in times that are much more challenging where our attention spans today, I mean, we're, we're flooded with information, right? But really we're starving for wisdom, right? And we, you know, and so to find those nuggets, right? Those little pieces, that's really where you have to be. And so the mind today is bombarded more than ever. You know, let's say you lived, you know, you grew up in, you know, in the 1940s versus, you know, a child that's growing up today, it's very, very different worlds, right? In a time today in history where, you know, tech is such a big factor in our lives and really that digital detox is so important, right? And I know that everybody talks about it and common sense is not common, is not common practice, but very few people are, are implementing that in their lives. And so I do think that it, it is very healthy, right? You know, when, when we go to bed, right? And we get those, you know, seven, eight hours, hopefully, you know, people are getting seven to eight hours, right? Because sleep is super important, right? Um, you know, there's all this research that, that that shown. And by the way, there's a really great book called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Um, I highly recommend it for anybody looking at this podcast. Um, you know, it's a well-known book, uh, but it's very, very important. And so if you can start off your day, you know, having slept seven or eight hours and having, having gotten that great sleep, then that's already a huge thing, right? Um, and then, you know, morning routines should be really focused not only on your body, but also on your mind, right? Um, so I have been very blessed to surround myself by some phenomenal people like Tony Robbins, right? There's a lot of really great um, mentors out there that I've, that I've had. I used to play tennis and, you know, I very much look up to, you know, people like Federer and Djokovic and, and, and Nadal and, you know, what are their habits, right? Uh, but, you know, in kind of in every arena of life, you know, you can find the greats. Um, and, you know, there, there's a guy called Wim Hof, uh, known as the Iceman. Um, I, I was blessed to see him a few times over my life. Um, and I, you know, one of the massive, you know, he's had a massive effect on my life in the last few years, for sure, um, with not only cold water plunging, but also breathing and meditating, right? So he really teaches you like these two things, right? He says like, look, every morning you should start your day uh, by, jumping into a cold shower whether it's you know for 60 seconds or for two minutes or for three minutes and by the way everybody on earth right we're eight billion people in the world every one of us does not like plunging into cold water right but we do it the reason why we do it is to tell our brain that we're not willing to negotiate this is how i will start off my day and i am telling you brain that i am the one in charge here i'm deciding and so you start your day off with this hardship and so everything else if you can do that right in the morning then everything else you know kind of falls into place in an easier way right of course 
working out um, every day or let's call it five to six times a week is something very important, right? Exercise has, you know, so many different be benefits. I mean, there's so much research that been, that's been proven, right? about that um, and I think that that one's obvious um, you know we also have today much more information on the health and you know having a great diet right than ever before and so I do think that implementing a lot of that we have access to incredible supplementation today right anything from athletic greens to taking you know omega and and ashwagandha and everything in between right there's so much out there there's so much information and just really you know everybody kind of going and doing their testing to see what fits them and their bodies right but really if you can start off your day right having had a great night's sleep and then you know working out doing some breathing and meditation and then you know doing a cold shower you can start off you know the rest of your day will be much better you will feel much better you will likely achieve much more right and that's really what you know if you look at it in a holistic sense you know tony robbins he has this incredible morning routine i mean his morning routine is a three hour routine right um and you know one of the elements that he adds you know to what i just mentioned is also the mind he every day he feeds his mind right because whatever you feed your mind is like it's absolutely essential right if you feed it you know some you know some let, let's talk about like you know um celebrity news right if you're feeding your mind with what's going on with somebody else's marriage that's not the ideal thing right you you have to feed your mind with a high quality product of whatever it is that you want to focus on for that day so if you're in real estate you know there's a lot of real estate there's a lot of great real estate podcasts if you're in business there's a lot of great business podcasts and there's also a lot of great audiobooks that you, you can have access to today while you're on you know running or walking or whatever it is so I do think that, you know, having that discipline and implementing that every day, right, and making that a habit, you will not see the effects of it, you know, after two days of doing it. But if you can implement it and do it every single day, every single day, every single day for months and for years, you will absolutely see incredible results from and having these morning routines. And you see that discipline is the main factor here it's not passion i mean i'm sure we all love i mean i'm yeah. sure you love real estate but do you wake up every single day passionate about it or you know you wake up sometimes in a bad mood and you still do what you need to do um because i i think that there's an issue nowadays in society we believe that do what you love means oh you're gonna wake up what what, what essentially people are saying is you're never gonna have a bad day and you know you're gonna have endless mo motivation if you do what you love but i think nobody it doesn't matter if you're passionate about real estate you you never wake up having unlimited passion for uh, unlimited motivation for everything you need to you, you wake up you know you had a bad night etc so, so the importance of waking up getting in the cold plunge every single day regardless of how you feel I think it's extremely important and you know definitely something that i admire of you that you do the cold plunge every day it's yeah <laughs> likewise likewise and you know you are the average of the people that you surround yourself with i do i do believe that very much and so i've endeavored to have a lot of really great people in my life surround myself right with people that have very high standards for themselves right so it's about you know you having these high standards and making them musts and not maybes 
right? Because maybe, you know, you're probably not gonna do it. But if it's a must, an absolute must, and you have reasons that go beyond yourself, right? Like these real estate titans, right? Um, you know, you hear about their stories and how they were working on Sundays, you know, and waking up at 4 a.m. on a Sunday, right? To go and work, you know, I don't think anybody I know likes to wake up, right? And so to your point, right? You know, and even if you are passionate about it, right? Then, you know, to wake up on a Sunday at 4 a.m., right? You're, this is not your ideal. Uh, but you, but when you have reasons that go beyond you, right, and when it's a must, you will find a way to do it, and you will, you know, it's not, a, it's a non-negotiable, and so, for sure. And you know, to your point about discipline, it's it's very very important. Discipline, consistency, right? Because you can all, we, you know, we've all seen that compounded effect, right? It's like that famous story about like you know the twenty-one holes in golf. You know, if we start betting. You know, the first hole we we bet one dollar, and then it's double or nothing on the second hole, and dollar you know double or nothing on the third hole. By the twenty-first hole, it's over a million dollars, right? Um, and so that's where you see the compounding effect, right? Um, and that's the same thing in life, right? And there's also another great book, uh, James Clear. He has a book called Atomic Habits, uh, where he talks about exactly this. You know, that consistency, yeah. that discipline over time, right? These little habits over time they become exponential. You mentioned the body and the mind here, and I think it's interesting. I'm a huge fan of a of a philosophy called Hasidut. Yeah. Um, and you know, there is Chabad and Breslev. I think are the m most well known Hasidut out there philosophies. And it's interesting because um, Chabad Hasidut, they it talks about get getting information like thinking about something and meditating on something will actually lead you to action because once you start thinking about it and you know internalizing it that will lead you to to act upon something yeah. but breast of hasirud is the opposite it says that through through action through dancing have you seen like in israel all these guys dancing in the streets and, and through dancing and through getting your body and changing your physiology that's how you affect the mind so it's two approaches Chabad is through your mind, you can affect your body. And the other one is through your body, you can affect your mind. So I think both of these approaches are valid yep. and each person needs to see what works better for them. Um, what has worked better for you or you do both approaches? Look, I think, I think both approaches are great. For me, it's a non-negotiable, it's a must to move my body in the morning, right? And that doesn't mean that you have to go on a marathon run. It means that you have to move your body, right? Get those steps in. You know, if if you have an Apple Watch, for example, right, and you can get in 10,000 steps, right, and kind of like the, the former part of the day, right, or the earlier part of the day, then that's phenomenal, right? But even if you can get 1,000 steps, 2,000 steps, or you can get your heart moving and get, you know, you don't have to go to a gym, you know, if you can, that's much better, right? Uh, but if you can go, you can, you know, you can go and walk in a park or you can do some type of exercise where you move your body, the physiology, right? And one of the big lessons in, in my journey in the last, um, let's call it, you know, a decade and a half of traveling the world and meeting some incredible people is I've learned the importance of energy, right? And of physiology that is intertwined with the energy, right? So even, even if you have a bad diet, but you have great physiology, you know, you're gonna feel much better than a person that doesn't have a you know great physiology. And really, what you know what that term means is it's how you move your body, right? It's how you stand up, right? It's it's 
it, it's something very important. And so I think, you know, for me, it works better. Each person, you know, will have something that works better. For I them. think there was a study that if you stand up two minutes, you know, yeah. up front and you, you take out your chest, right? I think that, you know, the, you know, I think for the next five hours, you're going to feel much, much better, right? Than, than if you're sitting down crouching. Yeah. Yeah. What are the three most important lessons you've learned in your life? There is. Um, wow, that's a, that's a great question. It's a d deep one. Um, so I, I would say that the first one is that we are born to connect and to love, right? And so because of that, um, you know, you, you see all these studies, you see all, you know, these kind of grown up people that are in their 70s, 80s, 90s that have lived these rich, fulfilled lives. And they tell you that, you know, either they're very happy that they spend so much time in their heart and less time in their head, or that they regret not having spent more time in their heart and, you know, and more focused on family and significant others etc than in their than in their head um and so definitely that you know an example of that is you know work a little less right and you know spend more time with loved ones you know that that's you know and it's a cliche and it's obvious but coming you know, from a hard worker <laughs> coming from a hard worker for sure like, that, that doesn't mean I, I don't think you should work hard i think that you should fulfill your life and i think that you know you, you have to be very careful with downtime right um yeah, because there is you know momentum in life right um and but i do think that what you can remove kind of like you can cut the fat right and remove you know netflix watching and you can remove you know your you know your wasted time every day on social media and instagram etc right so that's really i think and, and you can use that you know for either you know achieving whatever it is your purpose or you were born to achieve right or spending time with loved ones um I also think, um, you know, life, you know, the second thing I would say is that life is about we and not about me, right? So the ultimate fulfillment, this is something that I learned from Tony Robbins. Um, the ultimate fulfillment in life comes from you contributing to something bigger than yourself, right? So I do think, you know, we all have this survival brain, right? Where we, you know, our... The, the brain's job is to help us survive. It's not for us to be happy. That's why when we wake up in the morning, we're not smiling, right? It's not, we're not supposed to be smiling, right? Because our brain is designed for us to help us survive. But if we can, you know, if we can understand that life is about contributing to something bigger, right? Um, then I think that that's, you know, you're, you're halfway there already. Um, and it's just about taking massive action. And the third one I would say is that massive action and whatever it is that you want is, you know, a, a very, very important thing in life, right? So whatever it is that you want to achieve, whether it is you want to be with the love of your life, right? And spend time with them, right? You know, really, you have to take massive action. Um, if you want to achieve, you know, success in whatever endeavor, Right, you have to take massive action, and because, and I, and I, you know, I've seen it with a lot of like the Gen Z and Gen Y today, right? If if you know, I look, I look at my grandparents' generation, 
versus I look at today's generation. It's not that this generation, you know, has it easier or tougher. It's a very different, right, world environment. But the past generations understood hard work at a different level than today and understood taking massive action, you know, back then, I think, at a different level than today. And I think that, you know, for those people that can, right, and, and I learned this from, you know, these great uh, titans that I interviewed, right? I mean, they are the hardest workers in the room. They are, everything is about taking massive action for them. And so it's not, it's not coincidence. Nobody, nobody here in this book got lucky, right? Um, so yeah. I would say those, those three things, you know, I think that there's a lot more, but you know, those are three things that come to mind for sure. Awesome. And with that, I'm not going to take more time from you. I know you have to go back to, you know, buying, acquiring industrial assets in Mexico and multifamily assets in, <laughs> in the U.S. But uh, thanks for joining. And everyone, get a copy. I'm going to post a link on Amazon, uh, the link to Amazon. And, you know, it's definitely worth the, rate, worth the read. And uh, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, a pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Of course.